Section 13 of Kentucky's Famous Feuds and Tragedies by Charles G. Mutzenberg. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Kentucky's Famous Feuds and Tragedies by Charles G. Mutzenberg. Section 13. The Tolliver Martin Logan Vendetta, Part 4. Shortly after daylight, a stranger, afterwards recognized as Ben Rayborn, in company of Sue Martin, a young woman of much native sense and energy, emerged from the house and robbed a beehive in the yard without having discovered the enemy. Rayborn was heavily armed. His presence convinced the Tollivers that Cook Humphrey was in the house. They now determined upon the attack. But to avoid possible failure of the plot, it was deemed necessary to increase the force. A messenger was hurriedly dispatched to Moorhead. A short time afterwards, the Tollivers had assembled a force of twenty-five or thirty men, among whom were many of the most violent men of Rowan County. At nine o'clock, Craig Tolliver had stationed this force at every point of vantage. Then he and Bowling appeared at the front door with Winchester rifles gleaming in the sunlight. For the first time, the inmates of the house seemed aware of the presence of the enemy. There was apparently no chance of escape. Every door was securely guarded. Tolliver was met at the door by the brave Martin girls who demanded an explanation for the intrusion. Tolliver demanded the surrender of Cook Humphrey and any other man or men that might be with him. The girls stoutly denied the presence of anyone save the members of the family. Tolliver knew this to be false. With his own eyes he had seen Rayborn that morning. He charged the girls with duplicity and forced his way into the house. No one was found on the first floor. Then they attempted search of the upper story. At the stairway a shotgun suddenly belched forth fire and flame into the faces of the Tollivers. Craig's face and part of his body was filled with shot. The gunstock shivered to pieces in his hand. He sank upon the steps and rolled helplessly at the feet of his companions. Bowling miraculously escaped unhurt. Craig Tolliver was immediately placed upon a horse and sent to Moorhead for repairs. The others, not daring to force the stairway, went outside and contented themselves with firing through the doors and windows. The fusillade continued incessantly for a long time. Black smoke hung like a cloud over the premises. If the Tollivers hoped to force the surrender of Humphrey and his companion, by mere intimidation, they soon saw their mistake. These two men were brave to the core. Besides, they preferred to die fighting rather to being mercilessly butchered as helpless prisoners. They remembered the fate of John Martin. Finally, Humphrey managed to make himself heard through the din and crash of battle. He informed his assailants that he was there in the house and that by virtue of his office as sheriff of the county, none but the coroner had the legal right to arrest him. 
the Tollivers sneered at this speech. They had not come to uphold the law. They had succeeded in trapping the enemy, and meant to use the advantage they had gained. Hours thus passed. All day the guns roared into and from the house. The sun was sinking rapidly toward the western horizon. The shades of evening grew longer. As long as daylight lasted, the assailants had kept covered and protected, held at bay by the brave defenders. But in the dark of night, the end must come. They could not prevent a simultaneous attack from the entire force of the assailants. Surrounded on every side, escape seemed well-nigh impossible. Yet Humphrey essayed to make a sortie with his companion, hoping thereby to draw the fire of the enemy upon themselves, and to thus at least relieve the women in the house of further damage of death, which had threatened them every moment throughout that long day. It was a desperate undertaking, with ninety-nine chances in a hundred against its success. But Humphrey was brave, and so was Rayborn. As expected, the instant they emerged from the house, a shower of balls greeted them. They ran for their lives. Rayborn sank, rose and fell again, to rise no more. His body was riddled. Humphrey, however, seemed possessed of a charmed life. Though his clothing was torn to shreds, his body received not a scratch. Satisfied now that there were no more men in the house, the Tolliver clan crowned their infamous day's work by setting fire to it. The inmates escaped without even necessary clothing. The body of Rayborn was left lying where it had fallen until the next day, protected from mutilation by dogs and hogs by a rail pen which had been built around it by the heroic Martin girls. The excitement that prevailed in the county when the news of the cowardly attack upon the Martin home became known can better be imagined than described. The lover of law and order was terror-stricken. The question was asked in whispers, Where will it all end? The county judge was a well-meaning man but utterly incompetent as an officer, possessing none of the qualifications for such an office in a county like Rowan, at such a time of lawlessness and anarchy. He was weak and timid. Always in fear for his life, he completely lost his head. Warrants were at last issued upon the affidavits of the Martin girls against Craig Tolliver, Jeff Bowling, and a number of others, charging them with murder and arson. An examining trial followed. At that time such trials were held before two justices of the peace. One was said to be a Martin sympathizer, the other stood accused of being under the thumb of the Tollivers. The court's decision gave color to these suspicions. One of the magistrates decided for commitment of the prisoners to jail without bail, the other declared that no offense had been proven. Under the law then existing, this disagreement of the court permitted the murderers to go free. The trial was a pronounced farce. 
Afterwards, some of the parties were indicted by the grand jury for arson, but none was convicted and the murder charges against them all fell. Jeff Bowling, one of the most desperate of the Tolliver faction, removed from the county of Rowan a short time afterward and settled in Ohio, where he continued his career of crime, evidently believing that there, as well as in Kentucky, none dared molest him. He saw his mistake too late. It appears that his mother-in-law had married a wealthy farmer named Douglas of Licking County, Ohio. It had been due to the persuasion of Douglas that Bowling left Kentucky and settled in or near his Ohio kinsmen. Bowling had resided there but a short time when Douglas was found one morning in his barn murdered. The finger of suspicion pointed to Bowling as the only one who had a tangible motive for the commission of the crime. He was promptly indicted, tried, and sentenced to death, but the sentence was finally commuted to life imprisonment. He served seven years of his time and moved to Texas. Humphrey, after his miraculous escape from the Martin house, had become thoroughly convinced that it was impossible for him to longer continue in the office of sheriff, and resigned, William Ramey being appointed and qualified in his stead. Craig Tolliver, for a time, absented himself from Rowan County. He turned up in jail at Cincinnati, imprisoned on the charge of robbery. He was tried, acquitted, and returned to Rowan County, when trouble started anew. Several killings occurred in the county during the year, some of which had, however, only remote connection with the feud. John G. Hughes was killed by a mob styling themselves Regulators. Wiley Tolliver, son of L. H. B. Tolliver, was killed about Christmas, 1885, by one Mac Bentley during a drunken row. Early in 1886, the murder of Whit Pelfrey at Elliottsville, Rowan County, came near precipitating another outbreak. He was stabbed and killed by Tom Gooden, brother of S.B. Gooden, a prominent Tolliver man and brother-in-law of J., Bud, and Wiley Tolliver. Pelfrey, known as a strong Martin sympathizer, was an influential citizen and wealthy. Gooden was tried for this murder, but acquitted. The year 1886 brought with it an annual election at which all county officers were to be chosen. Each faction had its candidates in the field. It may therefore be easily imagined that neutral citizens remained in a state of constant anxiety and apprehension. Cook Humphrey and Craig Tolliver roamed throughout the county at the head of large forces, frequently entering the town of Moorhead and parading the streets in defiance of each other. On July 2, 1886, it being County Court Day, a warrant of arrest was placed in the hands of Sheriff Ramey for the arrest of Humphrey, who was in town that day. The officer went in search of and found him near the store of H. M. Logan, an altercation ensued between the men. 
both drew their pistols and began firing. Friends of both parties became involved, and the shooting became general. When the fight was over, it was found that the sheriff and his son and deputy were both dangerously wounded, while W. O. Logan, H. M. Logan's son, a youth hardly twenty years of age, was killed. Immediately after the fight, the factions retired to their headquarters and prepared for another conflict. The county judge was prevailed upon to demand troops. His request was readily granted, and a detachment of state guards, commanded by Major K. W. McKee of Lawrenceburg, hastened to the scene of the trouble. When July 3rd came, the citizens, women and children, trembled with fear of a bloody conflict. At the quarters of the factions, guns and pistols were cleaned, oiled, and loaded, cartridge belts filled, every preparation made for battle. Then the long-drawn notes of a bugle floated in the morning air. The astonished people peered through the windows and beheld in the courthouse yard a long line of soldiers, their guns and bayonets glistening in the morning sun. There was a sigh of relief. Danger had passed for the moment. The troops remained at Moorhead until sometime in August. It was due to their presence that the election passed off without violence and bloodshed. When circuit court convened, the Commonwealth was represented by the Honorable Asher C. Carruth, Commonwealth attorney for the Jefferson Circuit Court, and afterwards member of Congress from the Louisville District. End of section 13